0: Father, I pray now that the preaching of your word would be empowered by your Holy Spirit to work mightily unto the end for which you have given it. Awaken dead hearts to life. Comfort your people. Father, I pray that we would see the delight of holiness, the delight of being like you, but never to rely upon ourselves or our own works, but always to be uh, enraptured by uh, Uh, enamored by the grace of Jesus Christ, that we might exhort one another every day to rest only ever always in Him. Pray in His name. Amen. Please take a seat. I remember a a few times, I think it was probably in school or maybe some extracurricular clubs or something, where uh, the teacher would take you through this exercise in relaxation or calming And uh, one thing I remember them doing is they get you to close your eyes, to breathe deeply and think of your favorite place in the world to try and orient your emotions to this place. Have you ever had to do that? One of those exercises? Maybe you thought of like your vacation spot or the cabin you like to go to or maybe uh, your childhood home or maybe Sal's diner if you're Ollie. Um, I I confess that I usually thought of the Shire, where the hobbits live, (laughs) and uh, having your favorite place in the world be somewhere that doesn't exist might actually help to illustrate part of the problem, which is that when uh, we are trying to find that sense of rest, that sense of calm, uh, sometimes we wonder whether or not that's even a real thing that we can hold on to. And Right now, I think many people recognize this problem of trying to feel rest, of trying to feel calm, even just looking for relaxation. The pursuit of rest has become a multi-billion dollar industry. It's become a pursuit that takes up our whole lives. Think about that meteoric rise of yoga or, or even other programs that, that imitate yoga with a less spiritual sense. And... And, and most people who undertake those things are not just looking for physical uh, exercise. There's all kinds of apps that we use to calm ourselves, to relax us. This is the major goal of a great deal of counseling and therapy that we undergo. For many people, their whole lives are geared toward this sense of trying to find what rest is and enjoy it. The pursuit of rest is relevant when we think about God's command to keep the Sabbath day, that weekly day of rest, which God commanded be set aside by his people for worship. That is the topic that the Pharisees take up with Jesus in our passage today. Over the last few weeks, you've seen this mounting tension, Uh, This uh, mounting frustration the Pharisees are feeling towards Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes, of course, are the people who are famous for teaching God's law, for keeping God's law. And here comes this upstart, uh, poor, traveling teacher from Galilee, of all places. And he is starting to get an audience, and that is making the Pharisees upset So they're increasingly trying to challenge him, but each time they do, he shows a better grasp of God's law and God's heart than those Pharisees have. So now we find them waiting, watching Jesus like a hawk, looking for that moment when he might finally slip up when he might finally break the law in a way that they can uh, level a firm accusation against him. And this morning, they think that they've found it. So let's turn to Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was not made for man, uh not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I think it's pretty clear that the Pharisees would have been happy to find any accusation against Jesus. But they think they found a good enough accusation when they see Jesus' disciples picking heads of grain on the Sabbath. God's law said in Exodus 34, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. The Pharisees Argued that plucking heads of grain was a form of harvesting. Therefore, Jesus' disciples are clearly breaking God's laws regarding the Sabbath. So, how does Jesus answer them? Now, all of our points today are direct quotes from Jesus answering these accusations. And the first thing that we want to point out that Jesus says is that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The meaning of the Sabbath day, of course, goes all the way back to creation. God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. Now, of course, God did not rest because he was exhausted from his work, because he was tired and needed to recharge. This was a day where God could delight in the display of his glory in his created work. Then when God requires that his people set aside a day of Sabbath rest, the goal is very similar. Brother Kevin read us this command in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Notice that the primary command here is not negative. It's not like you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. It's a positive command. You will keep this day. You will keep it holy. This law isn't primarily a prohibition or a warning. Primarily, it's a gift. There are prohibitions that we see here against work. But that is actually so that the positive command can definitely be kept, so that everyone is invited to participate in and enjoy Sabbath rest. And this rest isn't even primarily meant to be physical. That is certainly a part of the rest that they're going to enjoy. But many ways, that need for physical rest, that enjoyment when you get physical rest is just going to be this way that our senses give us a sign pointing us towards the rest that we actually need, which God gives us on the Sabbath. A day set aside for delighting and resting in God's glory, like he himself had done after he created the world. This rest is a gift to us course there is a way that the Sabbath is also a day for God. It is a day where God's people give worship to him, but God doesn't need our worship. God loves our worship. God delights in it. God desires it, but he doesn't depend upon it like we depend upon food or rest. So this is not true for us. God is our creator. We depend upon God. And to dwell with him, to worship him, to enjoy him, that is what we were made for, as Patricia so delightfully reminded us of in her testimony. Now we do offer God that glory, that worship all of the time, but God gifts his people with one day a week where they get to specially, directly enjoy exactly what they were made to do. A day when people are invited to draw near. To worship God, to rest in Him purely and sweetly, enjoying what we were made of, like an animal in captivity that has just been released into the wild, like a machine that gets to carry out the purpose for which it is made, its proper function. In doing this purely and directly, we are doing what we were made for, and thus we get to enjoy the sweetest rest. But here come the Pharisees. The Pharisees and some of the similar camps of scribes and rabbis like them, they came on to the scene in an age where syncretism was high, paganism was growing, there was a neglect of God's word, there was a great deal of compromise. And so they made it their mission that they would protect and preserve God's law. But this meant that your reputation as a Pharisee depended upon everyone knowing that you were the best lawkeeper, that you knew the law the best, that you followed its commands better than anyone else. And this had turned the Pharisees' lawkeeping into a special kind of performance art. We saw that a little bit last week with fasting, but this was true of the whole law. If our good works, are necessary for the sake of our own reputation, then increasingly the reason we are doing good works is not for God. The audience is men. And if the goal of your good works is that other people would see them, that you would somehow benefit for them, from them, then increasingly you are going to emphasize the rules and the laws which are most visible. A faithful heart loving God, those things don't really get a Pharisee much, do they? But the ceremonial law, the sacrifices, the festivals, the Sabbath day of worship, this is your time to shine. So slowly, the traditions that the scribes and the Pharisees Added to emphasize this visible worship on the Sabbath took that day over until it had become this elaborate system of rules and regulations. And this meant that now not just the Pharisees, but everybody has got to spend all the Sabbath day fretting about whether or not they have followed all of the appropriate rules for resting. Did I travel too far to visit my mother? Did I exert too much energy getting supper ready? Am I allowed to do something about this gaping wound? The whole nation is held hostage to the Pharisees' interpretation of the Sabbath. So anybody who wanted real rest in God was going to have a hard time fitting it in between all the ways that they needed to impress men. So Jesus' answer here exposes how the Pharisees have totally turned this gift from God on its head. They took a gift that God gave to men and they enslaved men to it. And in so doing, they totally lost the true Sabbath. The Pharisees are holding the Sabbath hostage to their pride just like they are holding other people hostage to it. Thanks to these so-called law-loving Pharisees, the Sabbath was not kept holy, God was not honored, and men didn't get any rest. So Jesus, again, shows that the Pharisees certainly don't understand him, but also do not understand the law. Jesus explains this point with an example. Have you never read what David did, he says? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, this bread of the presence in the tabernacle, then in the temple, was set aside to show God's holy presence there. It is this wonderful reminder that God was dwelling near to his people. And so, you didn't just walk in and eat it. It was set aside eventually for the priest to eat, to provide for them. But as soon as David and his men are on the run being chased by Saul they come into the temple hungry do you think that this the law loving thing to do would be to let them starve so that the ceremonial sign could be preserved The priest Abiathar he didn't give David the bread because he suddenly doubted whether this law was good He didn't give David the bread because he suddenly doubted whether it was good to obey God. He did it because he understood the heart and the purpose of the law. The sign that this bread represented, again, wasn't something God needed. It's not that God personally had to make sure that that bread was set aside for him. God didn't depend on it. It was a gift to his people for the sake of their faith, and it would make no sense to Abiathar to let someone starve to keep up the sign which was a gift to us. The law itself actually has similar situations written into it. Doves and even grain could be sacrificed for those sin offerings that were meant to show a lamb's blood being spilt for the forgiveness of sins. You could celebrate the Passover a month later if you desired to keep it but were unclean when the Passover came. Because these things were not uh, things that God depended on. They had to be practiced perfectly for his sake. They were gifts to his people. God would never desire that his gifts of faith become obstacles for faithful people. So it's the same with the Sabbath. When Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus is not saying the Sabbath is yours, go to town and do whatever you want to. That would be a faithless neglect of the Sabbath. Again, a Sabbath according to our design and not God's. Jesus is saying what the Sabbath actually is. What God commanded it to be is a gift for you, the gift of resting in God. It's the Pharisees who had redesigned the Sabbath according to their design, all for their own gain. And they are doing this claiming that they are doing what God wanted. God already told Hosea, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. Meticulously perfect ceremonies were never the point faith was. God's true commands were all meant to give and grow faith and rest in God. Show us how to walk in nearness to God, not how to impress him with all the things that we could do. Those commands were good, but as gifts. In fact, the law revealed that if perfect, meticulous adherence to all of its rules, was the point, then all of us would only stand condemned before God. Even the true law, if you are trying to keep it like the Pharisees did, getting it all right to show that you are worthy, that you are acceptable, you are doomed. You are condemning yourself. The law will always expose our hearts, silence our pride, reveal our sin and our inability. That doesn't mean it's not good because the law was and in many ways still is a gift for the faith of God's people even after Christ has died and rose again and we are living the new wineskin life to go back to the prior passage. The law shows God's character, his heart. It shows what he loves. It shows how to rest in him. We were made in God's image and the law shows us how to be conformed to that image of God. The image we were made for. So the Sabbath is a wonderful, beautiful, visible display of the restful joy that we get to feel when we walk in God's will. But now we feel like there's a little bit of a contradiction in the law. Because how can we enjoy resting in the law if at the same time the law is condemning us for our failures? How is there rest if the law is telling us that we deserve God's wrath in hell? There is another thing that Jesus is pointing to in his reference to David here, why he chose that example in particular. While it seems like it would have been good for Abiathar to have given that bread to any hungry man who had come. David wasn't just any man, was he? David was the anointed king. David was the Messiah, and it was going to be his job to lead God's people in obedience to his law, to uphold it among them. Even the Messiah was happy to receive the ceremonial bread in his need. And now the Pharisees, just like Abiathar, are looking at the anointed king. The Messiah and his men enjoying grain provided to them by God in their need. Jesus, in this comparison to David, is pointing to the reality that he is the son of man. The son of David, anointed to reign over God's people. And by claiming lordship even over the Sabbath, he shows that he's even more than that. That's our second point from Jesus here. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. There are two ways that we can think of Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath. The first is that he is, of course, the Lord of the law. Remember that first time when Jesus came into the synagogue and he preached, and everyone was shocked by his authority. And it wasn't only the authority that any faithful teacher of the law should have, what the scribes and the Pharisees should have had. Jesus had a special authority over the law, the authority of an author. He created the law for his people, and he is without error, so the law is going to communicate exactly what he means it to. So when the Pharisees are challenging Jesus on the meaning of the law, they are challenging its author. He is the one who gave the command command to keep the Sabbath. He is the one who offered it as a gift to us. He knows its meaning. But there is a second meaning for this title, the Lord of the Sabbath. It's not just that Jesus is the author of the Sabbath day, but that Jesus is the one who offers us real Sabbath rest. He himself is our Sabbath rest. He created the Sabbath day so we could enjoy real, worshipful, God-glorifying rest. But that Sabbath day, very much like so much of the law, was given to direct the eyes of God's people to the gospel. It does this first by pointing backwards, all the way to the Garden of Eden. That's where Adam and Eve were enjoying sweet Sabbath rest. Communion with God, glorifying Him as they carried out the reason they were made, living as image bearers in an intimate relationship in the garden with God. Now after the fall, the Sabbath was a gift for God's people. Amidst the curses, the turmoil, the work, the strife, the pain that had come about because of sin, they got to take this day to remember and enjoy a taste of what Adam and Eve had lost at the fall. And it was also a reminder that God had promised right from the very beginning that one day his people would enjoy perfect rest with him again. In the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan, God's people kept the Sabbath, hoping that this rest might come when they reached the promised land. There they could build a temple. They could plant fields. They could build houses. They could worship God. They could finally rest from their wandering. So they came to Canaan. They went to war against their enemies, waiting for a day when all of them would be defeated. And then they could rest in the land. But Joshua died. And despite everything that he had done in the conquest of Canaan, despite everything Moses had done in the wilderness, the people were in the land, but they couldn't rest. Because of their sin. That promise of lasting rest was not fulfilled by Joshua. The author of Hebrews explains in chapter 4, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. We see in the Psalms and all throughout God's word, a continued waiting for rest and longing even after they're in Canaan. So then, says the author of Hebrews, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A rest they are still waiting for. They're still looking for it. And then David comes. Well, maybe David, the one who defeated God's enemies, the one who ruled wisely, the man after God's own heart, the one who planned the temple, maybe he can bring about real, lasting Sabbath rest. But he can't. David is still a sinner. And so are the people under his reign. David needs a promise from God that one day he will get Sabbath rest. Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, none can bring lasting rest to God's people. Then comes the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who created the Sabbath to prepare God's people for when he would come to offer them real, lasting Sabbath rest. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You might remember last week that this isn't just rest from sin, but rest from the sinful striving to try and fix our sinful problems. Jesus has come into our tumultuous suffering, our fallen sinful existence under the curses. Without ever sinning, he experienced that turmoil, that suffering, and then he felt the full wrath of God that our sin deserves on the cross. He felt God turning his face away. The opposite of the communion with God that we enjoy in Sabbath rest. And he did this to take everything that sin, our sin, deserves. So that we could be offered Eden, Sabbath, rest. Intimate, personal relationship with God. Which Jesus alone deserves. Jesus rose The dead. An assurance to us that all of these promises will absolutely be kept. If Jesus has risen from the dead, then all who trust in him will rise to new life. The world will be made new as a place for eternal, perfect Sabbath rest. The end of suffering and death. Not just God meeting his people in a place in a building, but us walking with God as his holy presence touches all creation. True Sabbath rest for the people of God. So when the Pharisees rejected Jesus for the sake of the Sabbath, they were rejecting the Sabbath. Not just the meaning of the day, but the real lasting Sabbath rest and worship that this day was pointing to. The rest Jesus was offering to all those who repent and trust in him. The Bible gives us countless examples of people who said they wanted rest, who longed for rest, who wanted it more than anything else, but could not trust in God's salvation that brought true, lasting Sabbath rest. Often this meant they were defining for themselves what rest was, the rest that they wanted, When the Israelites first saw that getting into Canaan would have to mean fighting a bunch of gigantic Canaanites, they decided that their ideal idea of rest was slavery in Egypt. That's, uh, we don't want to go fight Canaanites. I want to go rest in slavery in Egypt. That's going to have to be good enough. Even these Pharisees, rest was constant anxiety about whether or not you were doing good enough to impress people. This may seem absurd, but you have to ask, what idea of rest are you pursuing right now? What do you see as your ideal picture of rest? If you are chasing an idea of rest apart from being reconciled to God, apart from His promises, then your idea of rest is just as foolish as slavery in Egypt. Or anxiety to fuel your pride. Whether your idea of rest is just hours, days in front of your television, pursuit of a wealthy retirement, none of those things are real, lasting, actual rest. You might as well try living in the shire. Our ideas of rest are illusions. And when we finally get them, They're not all necessarily sinful, some of them are. But apart from God, they're hollow. Sometimes they're even terrible, apart from the rest that is only ours in Jesus. Maybe you've already seen this in your own pursuit of rest. You can definitely see it around you, don't you? We live in one of the richest societies in the world. We have the most free time. We have the least homework. We have the most lifestyle choices. Do whatever you want, and yet we are somehow more depressed and anxious than ever because we are rejecting God's salvation. And so, in our pursuit of rest, we are rejecting rest. We are rejecting the Savior who is extending that rest to us. Come to me and I will give you rest. The author of Hebrews puts it to you. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And then let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as those Israelites who rejected the promised land. This is an invitation to you to rest in the Sabbath rest that was purchased for you by the blood of Jesus. He suffered all of the turmoil and the anguish and the wrath that your rebellious search for rest deserves. He has taken it all so that he might offer you immediately, right away, peace with God. The peace that really matters. And if you lay down your rebellion, if you repent of that, and you trust in that promise that Jesus offers to you through his death and resurrection, then that rest is yours now. It is here. Jesus accomplished it for you. Peace with God today. So lay down your striving. Lay down your war. And with it, all the anxiety that you have brought upon yourself. Be welcomed into his rest. He really did rise from the dead, you know. He really did come out of the grave to secure for anyone who trusts in him an eternal place of rest in his kingdom. Can you imagine anything sweeter than that? Believe in Jesus and you will be welcomed into his rest. Now, it is important to remember that the author of Hebrews is not just speaking to those who know that they are not a part of God's family, those who know they haven't repented and believed. His actual audience are those who believe that they are Christians, who call themselves a part of the church, that are still rejecting God's rest. They are still pursuing worldly pleasures, sinful passions, twisting God's gifts to their own purposes. And Jesus exposes this wickedness in the Pharisees and maybe in us in the next passage. Let's continue looking at Mark chapter three, verse one. Mark chapter three, verses one to six. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Our third point is Jesus' question here. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? So we have a second scene on the Sabbath. A man with a withered hand in the synagogue. And the Pharisees are watching him. They're watching him because they can clearly see that here's a man in need. And they know what Jesus is going to do if he sees a man in need on the Sabbath. Why is that so interesting to them? Because they are sure that once again, they'll catch him breaking the Sabbath. Non-life-saving healing was also a category of work which had been prohibited on the Sabbath. Remember when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law and all of these people in genuine distress sickness, hurt, flock to him, but only after sundown. They have to wait. They have to carry their burdens because on the Sabbath day, they are forbidden from going out to seek healing. They could not be healed. They could not be granted rest because they were afraid of the Pharisees and their teachings on the Sabbath. So Jesus, as he heals this man on the Sabbath, exposes The hateful hearts and the twisted rules of the Pharisees. First, he shows that they hate the Sabbath itself. They don't want the Sabbath to be a day of rest. They don't want it to be a gift for the good of God's people. They need it to be a day of anxiety, a day where you prove your mettle. If anyone tried to keep the Sabbath the way God desired, they'd rebuke that person. How dare you come to God for relief and rest on the Sabbath? Second, Jesus shows how much these men despise God. They don't actually care what God himself determined was lawful on the Sabbath. They're trying to commandeer God's Sabbath day, the day when his people glorify him and they co-opt it for their own purposes, for the sake of their pride. Even now, God has come. Jesus, the son of God, is standing before them offering Sabbath rest to God's people and their hearts are hard. Jesus is angry and grieved while being perfect in his knowledge, it's like being flabbergasted. God is here, and they are rejecting his Sabbath rest being offered to them or anyone else. Everyone else is looking at these miracles and coming to understand, who could that guy be? But the Pharisees refuse, even if the evidence is clear because they are firmly resolved to pursue their own glory rather than God's. Third, Jesus exposes that they hate this man, by extension all men. The Pharisees have no interest in the welfare of a hurting man. Just like they would have been happy to see Jesus' disciples starve if it had meant keeping the Sabbath, so they'd be very happy to see this man left his entire life with his disability, unable to work to provide for his family rather than see Jesus heal him. But in this case, they actually kind of do want him to heal that man, don't they? (laughs) Not, Not because they love the man, but because they believe that they have laid him out as a trap for Jesus. This man, because of his weakness, because of his suffering is the perfect bait for the Pharisees to catch Jesus being gracious. The Pharisees turn people into objects to suit their own purposes. The people of God have become a commodity to make use of for their own gain. They are good to people when it benefits them. People are useful in that way as an object of the good works that can be seen by others. But they would refrain from any good which would damage their public image, would go against their pursuit of their own glory. So, all at once, Jesus has exposed in the Pharisees, before they've even said a word to him, their hatred of the Sabbath and God and men. And the Pharisees immediately confirm this in their response to what Jesus does. This is the moment that they resolve that they are going to have to kill Jesus. And they go and get the help of the Herodians. We don't know a great deal about the Herodians, but the name seems helpful enough. Most Jews were firmly opposed to the reign of King Herod, who was a non-Jewish king that had been installed by the Roman emperor. So the Herodians were likely Jews that advocated for Herod's reign, that did everything they could to keep Herod's power secure. If the Pharisees were the opponents of all this Roman syncretism, the Herodians would have been the advocates of it. This means that the only thing that they would have had in common was that they saw Jesus as a threat. So the Pharisees are proving Jesus right. They're showing that their righteousness is just a performance. It doesn't matter in the dark and in secret. They are prepared to work with men that they would openly condemn, men who despised God's law if they can preserve their position, their security, their own idea of rest. Now, in the overall picture of Mark, this final confrontation with the Pharisees and their response to plot to kill Jesus is an important step in God's plan to bring Jesus to the cross as an atoning sacrifice for sin. Many of us have claimed to love God, to love His Word, and it's hard for others to see that in us. They can't, we, don't, we can't question that. But what is visible what we can see is our love or lack of love for each other. Jesus' question for the Pharisees is for us. If we say that we love God, that we love His will, that we desire His rest, then we have to ask if we really love those things on God's terms, have we obeyed His commands for that rest? Primarily, as they relate to how we have loved others. Have we been eager to serve others, to promote life and health and joy among God's people? If we love God's rest, have we been excited to become a means through which that rest is extended to other people? This question is still real for us because the Sabbath, even the Sabbath day, has not gone away. Jesus didn't end the keeping of the Sabbath day at his first coming. He did make it new. His death and resurrection suddenly, wonderfully, inaugurates a new covenant, and it drastically, beautifully changes the visible shape of God's people, which is going to change what it looks like to keep the Sabbath. One obvious change is that Christians immediately shifted the day of worship to Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection. Worship changed from things looking forward to God's coming salvation, now to worship that looks back on the salvation that's been accomplished, even as we look forward to Jesus' final return. The New City Catechism says that when we read the Fourth Commandment, we recognize that on the Sabbath day we spend time in public and private worship of God, rest from routine employment, serve the Lord and others, and so anticipate the eternal Sabbath. There are great questions to discuss, uh, like what it means to rest from employment in a non-Christian society, where employers are not mandated to honor God's command. But for every believer We should still desire, and as much as it is within our power, pursue a day that is not just for physical rest, but for real Sabbath rest. And this will look like giving glory to God as they did. It will mean enjoying a gift of rest that he has offered to you personally. But Jesus shows us here, just like our catechism points out, that these two things are also bound up in serving others. God's promise of Sabbath rest is not something that he extends to us individually. Have rest, go pursue rest, enjoy my rest. It is a promise that God made to his people. The day of rest is one that we are meant to enjoy as a people, just like that future Sabbath rest in the new kingdom will be for God's people all together finally united to worship him. And rest in Him. Sabbath rest, even now, depends upon us being a means of one another's rest. This is true even in this gathering that we enjoy on Sundays. We have seen that the Epistle to Hebrews is all about that question of whether you will enter into God's rest. And it's in that epistle that the author says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Both enjoying God's Sabbath rest today and looking forward to the Sabbath rest when Jesus returns are things that are meant to be done together. This is actually the main reason that the author of Hebrews says his readers are rejecting God's rest because they were rejecting God's people. They were distancing themselves from other believers because they were concerned about the repercussions of being associated with them. They had stopped meeting together. They had refrained from doing good for other Christians. They were thinking about themselves and their own needs. Their own idea of rest got in the way of the love of God's people. And so, they were rejecting real Sabbath rest. Do you struggle with the question of whether to come to church on Sunday? What do you tell yourself in those moments? What, what do you say to your heart why you should be here? Because God says you have to. Because that's what good people do. They go to church Your reputation depends upon it. Maybe you say you should go because it is good for you. It's good for me. It helps me. I get a lot out of it. Have you remembered that this is not a service being offered to you or a presentation being performed for you like an audience? This is a gathering. Of people, And the Sabbath rest we are told to take today relies upon us being God's people together. The Sabbath is a gift for you, but it is a gift for you as a part of a people. And a part of God's gift to you is that you get to be the gift of God's rest to other people. Some people cannot be here. They long to be here. And we've seen in this passage God's grace to those people, our brothers and sisters, who would love to be worshiping with us because they love God and they love his people and they want to be here. And God is gracious to them in their delight in his people and their love of the saints. But if you regularly choose to miss this gathering for other commitments, or just because you stay up way too late on Saturdays, if you regularly show up late and hide as much as you can from the church, you are saying that those other things that have gotten in your way are the things that you need to rest in more than the Sabbath rest of God's people. That is what I need. And you are also telling your brothers and sisters in Christ that those things are more important than them. More important than them resting in God. You are treating the church like a business that is offering you a product. You might like this product. You might enjoy it for a long time. But if ever it stops being good or useful to you, You can stop using it. Maybe switch to a different manufacturer. But this is a family. You're a part of it. Or you're distant from it. You're participating in it. Or you're ignoring it. This is a people that God has brought together to glorify Him and rest in Him together. We are enjoying the reason we were made together. We are helping one another Enjoy that. Does your attitude towards the worship service, the church, God's people, does that show that you're thinking like a Pharisee? You, apart from the church, you get to decide what worshiping God looks like. You get to decide what it means to relate to God, to know God. Nobody is going to tell you what your relationship with God looks like. And whether you are known in this church as a member or not, this has essentially kept you as a guest and a stranger among God's family. You have commandeered God's word. You have commandeered God's will and his rest. You have taken it, not just from the church, you've taken it out of God's hands. And you might have twisted the idea of God's church, his worship service, into something that you think is good, something that you think is restful, something that you think you would love. You might even have twisted it into something that you hate and eventually want to get rid of. So for the love of God and his people and his Sabbath rest, surrender God's Sabbath back to him. Surrender your will to God's will for his worship and his rest and his people and his church and their worship together. God is offering you rest, not that worldly buffet of ideas that are always going to leave you with longing. He is offering you freedom from Egypt and a place in the promised land with his people. We are on the way there We are in the wilderness and while we are there, he has given us a day to remember that, to see it together, to hold each other to it, to remind one another that we are not enslaved in Egypt anymore. That is not rest, we do not want that. To remind one another in our wicked hearts, don't go back there to the world's ideas of what is restful, what is joyful, what is good, You are no longer a slave to your passions, your sins, your pleasures. We are God's people together, caring for one another, submitting to him, loving his will, because he's already saved us by his grace. And we love to worship God. We love doing what we were made for. We want to remind one another of that. This is his gift to us so that we might hold on to hope for the eternal Sabbath rest that is coming for the people of God through Jesus. So enjoy the rest with God's people that is yours in Christ. Extend it to others. Extend it to them in this gathering. Extend it to them throughout this day. Extend it to them through the week and your whole life. Enjoy God's Sabbath rest. Be the means of others enjoying it. Delight in it. It is a treasure It is a treasure bought by the blood of Jesus. And never let it go. Cling to it in the hope for the day that is coming when true and perfect rest will be ours in the kingdom of Jesus forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would cling to your Sabbath rest and cling to it together. We thank you that this rest is a promise in Christ. It is not something we deserve It is ours because Jesus took what we deserve so that we might rest in him. And Father, if there is anyone here that keeps themselves distant from your people, that cares little for the gathering of your saints in Sabbath rest, that is focusing upon themselves and their own idea of what is good and restful, Father, I pray that they would repent in recognizing the true Sabbath rest that you give to us, not according to our design, but a greater gift according to yours that we would rest in the good news of Jesus. And I pray that we would hold one another on to that good news and that rest until the day we will perfectly, eternally enjoy it together in his kingdom. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.